Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's right on four o'clock and thanks to Acting Up. Joan Bartlett, I'll be here until six this evening for... Tuesday Home Time. Today, the consequences of the stabbing of Maranto in Indonesia and possible impact for West Papuans. I'll be speaking to Ronnie Karini. Part two of Coral Winter's visits to the Galilee Basin in Queensland and then to outback New South Wales, where water is getting scarcer and scarcer. Impact on Indonesia. Indigenous Ecuadorans of mining in the Andes area of their country. Anthony Amos, who you heard a few moments ago, is also part of the Melbourne Rainforest Action Group. Bishop George Browning and a short history of Zionism, a little bit different to Alex Rivkin's view on the history of Zionism. And Dr Tim Anderson explaining some of the conflicts in the Middle East, why they are occurring. But first... Mr Kevin Healy and his week that was. A week, Jan Lister, when you mentioned last week how big Supremo scuttled their more lash son made a bold but failed bid for the that appalling Hoon son, please explain, award with direct quote, True Blue Aussie sovereignty is at risk from a negative globalism that coercively seeks to impose a mandate from an often ill-defined borderless global community and worse still, an unaccountable internationalist bureaucracy. Aimed, we said ironically, at winning the hardened heart of that appalling Hoonsun, even if she couldn't understand a word of what he said, we're not sure he did. Though interesting, when it comes to world's best practice for worker productivity, for instance, Remember the maritime dispute? Our workers had to match Singapore or corporations zigzagging capital around the world in milliseconds. They are ardent supporters of globalisation. So workers must meet world's best practice. But when it comes to little matters like the earth frying to death, that's negative globalisation, ill-defined borderless, unaccountable internationalist bureaucracy. Interesting. Not suggesting there's any hypocrisy, and we'd never accuse the Lord Rupert of whopping sin of hypocrisy, as it describes crowds at the grand final parade, for instance again, as happy and enjoying the moment and not holding up people going about business as usual or costing the public purse to keep an eye on, because those sort of people don't need to be kept an eye on, but those calling for action on climate change, if there is, protesters clogging streets see the footy mob only protest after the game and then only the losers and yesterday inconvenient truth for climate rebellion three million protest bill bloody irresponsible mob and inside a report on the extraordinary damage caused by the Japanese typhoon but obviously no relationship to climate change if there is because that didn't rate a mention and Lord Rupert would have mentioned it if it was relevant and no mention of the cost billions and billions caused by the not climate change if there is. Similar to tele-news reports last week denouncing these dreadful protesters marauding the city and confusing the 
sorry, the protectors of law and order, although as we mentioned again last week, that's not difficult, but then next item, some meteorological disaster out of season, although now seasonal bushfires raging without making any connection between the one and the other. Sadly, this borderless global internationalist bureaucratic negativism continues to impede progress. We saw those anarchists running right in the streets of Melbourne, of True Blue Aussie, of the world last week, carrying on about so-called climate change and preventing people going about their lawful business. And now, the usual suspect anti-progress forces demanding Oregon profits energy at its annual general meeting tomorrow agree to close True Blue Aussie's biggest black coal power station two years earlier than planned and explain how it lives with the health effects of coal, its fracking in the Northern Territory and its membership of fossil lobby groups. For goodness sake, they've got a right to be in the union. But on the positive side, a couple of corporate proxy advisors representing the big, big shareholders, in other words, important people doing their bit for this society and not disrupting people like these important shareholders going about their normal business, have backed the Oregon's profit board and recommended those they represent vote against these climate change warmest fanatics. The board issued a 21-page reasoning for its rejection of these anti-progress resolutions, although my only query is, why did they need 21 pages when a few simple words would have sufficed? Like, we won't close the plant early re reason in one word, profit. The health concerns rebuffed responsibly in four words. Couldn't give a proverbial. Concerns over the onomatopoeic fracking? Ditto. And the fossil lobby memberships? We have every right to be in a good, good union, unlike the evil unions which give us such grief. That's 18 words, bringing us to a grand total of 27. So, not sure why they needed 21 pages, and the word reasoning might be a little inflated, but what another example of how these globally negatives are trying to come between great international corporations and a coal trainload of lovely, lovely money. The usual suspects, suspects called for the biggest coal mine to be closed in 2030 rather than 2032, a devastatingly unreasonable demand with Oregon profits pointing out that would deprive it of two years of one word answer one as like the government it says it's um, coal mining franking health concerns and fossil uh, fossil unions are meeting true blue Aussies Paris commitments in a canter which says heaps for those commitments plus on the great level playing field of world's best practice competition policy poor that's globalised good globalisation or Oregon profits couldn't get arch rival AG Hell for the environment but a head start for a AG Hell also rejected the same negative unelected mobs similar proposals a couple of weeks ago and while these young people lead demented older people on these anti-progress campaigns if there is such a thing as climate change then it's not all bad just as Origin Profits Origin Profits and AG Hell 4 can see a coal trainload of lovely lovely money to balance any problems that may arise like the end of life as we know it the outdoors apparel company Catman do put up the prices boasted that extreme weather hot or cold meant it sold more put up the prices stuff 
The Spencer Street no longer Spencer Street Fairfax no longer Fairfax daily headlined the excitement. Record profit. Extreme weather proves a boon for Catman do up the prices. Surely these negative globalism coercively seeking to impose a mandate from an often ill-defined borderless global community and worse still an unaccountable internationalist bureaucracy lots should have the grace to look at the positives of climate change if there is. Bring the sort of balance to the debate that government and the great corporations bring, except as we must, we must have a mix of fossils in our energy fossil mix. While praising government balance, we do have to concede admiration for government when it does get the balance right. As it's expected, the machinery will move into Dale tomorrow to begin work on the Ararat Roadworks, part of the reconciliation treaty process with the local indigenous people. But as they bulldoze that environment, environment back here in white sacred site melbourne the same roads authority has announced proudly it intends to plant 30,000 new trees as part of the northeast link project without a hint of seeing the irony and okay 16,000 not so sacred trees will be chopped down for that giant freeway many of the oldest trees around but they will collect seeds from the most significant trees I guess the trees are queuing up to be considered significant, but there we are, balance. Perhaps as a gesture of goodwill up Ararat way, they could collect the seeds of sacred First Peoples trees and hand them to them as part of a treaty ceremony. Win-win. Perhaps the government is being a bit too compromising with the Jabarung people. Perhaps they should have a lesson from the Minister for keeping us secure and overseeing concentration camps, raise a wire and sink the boats, Constable Peter Duffer, who outed for attempting to rot the rules that Sri Lankan couple who met here, moved to the Queensland town of Balola and had two children. Anchor babies, Pete said. That's telling them a bloody conspiracy to take advantage of our goodness. Seems they plotted to cheat their way into True Blue Aussie. Let's pose as a couple. Go to a town where we can fool people into accepting us and have a couple of kids. Anchor babies. Well, they couldn't fool Pete. He saw through, saw through their ploy. After all, he told us his job is to protect us all, and obviously these anchor babies and their Machiavellian parents pose a major threat to our security. The Sri Lankan government knows, you know, like, how to treat a terrorist like racial minority. But, but sadly, the Victorian socialist, like, you know, government, hasn't got the courage like I've, you know, like got to stand up to this true blue Aussie terrorist racial minority. Like those Kurds whose loyalty to US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor is questionable. Although Kurds in the US are organizing to prove their loyalty by going all out to have Donald re-elected. We must thank him for bringing our plight to the peoples of the world. And I'm sure Kurds in Turkey would be welcome at the Istanbul Trample the Poor Tower, as long as they've got enough money, or, or more likely as cleaners and domestics. But Donald's correct. I checked my train-killing records, and the, um, the bloody Kurds didn't lift a finger to help at Normandy. Well spotted, Donald.
Finally, C. Subwages Way got sprung underpaying workers, well, inadvertently underpaying workers, and the Small Business Profits Council argued so many caring employers are being sprung because the awards are too complicated and thereby create the inadvertent rip-offs. Uh, I mean underpayments, inadvertent underpayments, which they all are. Not one sprung caring employer has deliberately underpaid its lazy, avaricious workers. But as usual, we put to the small business profit slot, how come then it doesn't balance out and half the inadvertence are overpaying workers, overpayments at this stage sitting at 0%. Well, the good news is it's not that complicated in that direction. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to Mr. Kevin Healy. And as I tell people just about every week, if you want more of Kevin Healy, you have to be up early, 9 o'clock, for City Limits, which goes until 10 o'clock. And I think housing, public housing is on the recipe, one of the recipes for the program tomorrow. I heard on the program previously acting up that the bulldozers or workers are moving in at Ararat. So this is even more important, this message. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japarung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarung traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarung country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. On the line now is Ronnie Carini from the United Liberation Movement for West Papua. First, Ronnie, the attack, the knife attack on Waranto. I would imagine there would have been fears that would have been blamed on West Papua. He's just back from West Papua. What has his role been there to do with West Papua? Well, since the beginning of the Jokowi presidency, the first term, Wiranto has been a key player uh, behind the scenes in terms of policies, in terms of a response from Jakarta on West Papua's increasing call for the human rights situation as well as um, the call on right to self-determination. And this came about in 2015 when Jokowi announces a freedom of press for media and foreign media to be allowed into the region. And that just changed the dynamics within the parliament of Indonesia for a reshuffle. So at the time, another general, Luhut Panjaitan, was the coordinating minister for political, legal, and security affairs, was shifted straight from that portfolio, and Wiranto came into that portfolio. And he said, from now on, anything on West Papua, he will single-handle the situation. And that 
changes in terms of anything to do with peaceful demonstration in West Papua and any responses from the Papuan uh, provincial government have to deal with him. And the idea as well of that freedom of express to come into West Papua gone or just disappeared, wasn't even discussed any further. Even um, Jokowi's intention to deal with human rights cases, at least three human rights cases that he promised that he will look into, and Jakarta even established the team, a human rights team, to be put in place, and this human rights team will look into the cases. That just disappeared on the radar. So moving into the second term, and mid-August coming up, since the Surabaya harassment of the Papuan students, Buranto was the first person to put, uh, put it into the media or put, hold a press conference that he will handle or he will look into the situation whereby call on the Papuan elites, especially those within the government, provincial government, Papuan, um, they, they establish what's called the Papuan Council, which is part of the special autonomy package, and call them to Jakarta, which indirectly legitimizes the deployment of over 6,000 special elite forces onto the ground in West Papua. And since then, that has been the stance on um, responding to West Papua uprising or any demands from Papua until today, as we speak. And so he, after the Wamena riot on the 23rd of September, Wiranto held a press conference the next day saying that what's happening in Wamena is actually another third party involved. He didn't mention who, but just say that there is a third party involved in the riot and the bending down of government facilities and the death of 33 people, which he emphasized in the media and to the journalists at the time that 22 were non-Papuans. And that was the message that he portrayed to the journalists and told them to write it and say that the victims were the non-Papuans. And so the narrative kind of like shifted into this social conflict and social tension between indigenous Papuans and non-Papuans, and then as well as the narrative of religious grounds, especially uh, the Muslims were killed in that, um, in that Wamena riot. So, yeah, he has been pretty much the person behind responding to West Papua's um, call or responding to West Papua case. Why was he in West Papua just before he was attacked? He was in West Papua just two weeks after Wamena riot, and he just went in there to announce that Wamena is inconducive and Wamena is now safe and secure. And he was down with his the National Chief of Police and as well as the National Chief of the Army. And they make a public statement on the day um, they arrived, that this was last Monday, that they arrived in West Papua and went straight to Wamena and declared that Wamena is now safe and secure. 
and they call as well for the Muslim communities, especially the non-Papuans and trans-migrants, that the government is willing to um, use the military plane to fly them back from wherever they are, since they have left at least over 7,000 of the trans-migrants have left Wamena since that the Wamena riot on 23rd of September. And so he said that um, he announces that people are now can, or he announces that people can go back to Wamena and the government are happy to take them back with the military plane. And so that was the announcement. And then the next day we hear about this stabbing incident in West Java that he attended another meeting that he has to go to. And that, that is a place of the stronghold of the opposition leader uh, from Gerendra Party, uh, Prabowo Subianto, as well as the stronghold of the, the, the Islamic community. What's your reading on the situation in Wamina at the moment? At the moment, this leading up to the inauguration of the president and the new cabinet, the announcement of the new government on the 20th of October, everything that is happening since the election in May and straight after that, the riot in Jakarta on the 21st, which led to six people dead, and then series of incidents happened from there until with West Papua student harassment in Surabaya. The actors behind those incidents are the same people. And so this is also a contest of ideology or in the pushing of the caliphate, as well as who will be in, power, in position in the new cabinet. And so Jokowi is in a very challenging position, as well as in a very weakness, weak position to decide in terms of the new government that he will form. And so this all comes into play with West Papua's case being at play by leaders in Jakarta trying to pull the strings together to making sure that their agenda, their interest in economy, as well as their business, as well as those generals, the elites, as well, they wanted to make sure that everything that they, you know, even their blood's on their hands is untouched. And so that's what at play, and from observation leading up to the new president's inauguration, that's a lot of these incidents that are happening in throughout Indonesia. And the sad part now for Indonesia itself is the weakening of the constitution in terms of um, the criminal code. The criminal code has been to weaken the anti-corruption institution and as well as tightening some laws against the marginalized and minority groups such as the LGBTIQ communities, as well as freedom of expression and association, as well as the labor movement, the workers' rights are also part of this new law that they just pushed early this month is to weaken that. And so we are moving 
especially in Indonesia, it's, it's moving back into the new order era. With the new face of Jokowi, it's moving back. It's kind of like Jokowi, just a mask of new order regime. And just explain a little bit further what this could mean for the people of West Papua. So what it means now is that the freedom of expression, freedom of association in West Papua, under the new law, anything that people are organizing, it's, they're regarded as criminals, and they will be penalized under this new law, which is the criminal code. And Indonesia adopted this from their former colonizer, the Dutch. And so now they're using that. And so at least so far now, seven West Papuan political prisoners have been charged uh, under the treason charge, under this new law. And it is also after, it is also a new precedent that was set up just in the last, since the penal code was reviewed and and endorsed by the parliament, now we have seven West Papuan political prisoners have been transferred from West Papua without informing the families, without informing the legal representatives. They were taken from West Papua in Jayapura and sent straight to Kalimantan, and that's a notorious prison for criminals. So that just happened over two weeks ago. And these are the leaders. Buktatabuni, um, he is the vice chair of the Legislative Council within the United Liberation Movement for West Papua, as well as the chairperson of the, the KNPB, it's the Mass Mobilization or the Grassroots Organization, Agus Kosai, the chairman, as well as five other Papuan activists. And they've been already transferred without any confirmation to families, and now their, their, their trial will be held in East Kalimantan, and now they are held in this um, prison in, in East Kalimantan, and that's notoriously known for criminals. And all this is happening, Ronnie, at a time when West Papuans are urging the United Nations human rights head to come to see what is happening. Absolutely. This is all in time with the call from the West Papuans for a visit of the UN, but as well calling for Jakarta to open or allow access for human rights groups to carry out independent investigations into not only what's happening just now, recently, but looking back at some of the human rights cases, such as the Biak Meseka in July 98, as well as um, Wamena um, King in early 2000, as well as uh, Paniai bloodshed of the young um, students in 2015. And as well, fast forward a bit in 2018, December, and up until now, the Nduga crisis, which has forced at least over... 30,000 indigenous Papuans out of their villages. And, and this is a crisis that, uh, is, that uh, is faced in Duga, and the government has not come up with a solution to respond to that. And so all of this is now 
that call for a visit of that as well as the media to at least report factually on what's happening rather than hearing from the state, especially through the security intelligence about the situation on the ground. And it's all basically at the moment, it's the narrative is is coming from Jakarta rather than a factual findings of what's happening on the ground. And so the call for that has also been made clearly at the Pacific Island Forum in August um, of this year in Tuvalu, which is to call for a UN Human Rights Council, a UN Human Rights Commissioner to pay a visit. And, and that is part of Indonesia's obligation as well as a UN member state uh, responding to the Universal Periodic Review in 2017 that they will allow a visit of from the office of the UN Human Rights Council and until now there has not been a process or a date to really allow that visit and so the pressure is now mounting up on Jakarta to convene and set a date and of course yeah. and of course you could say that Australia the Australian governments have blood on their hands by training the military who are probably in West Papua now. Absolutely. This is a very important and very critical time for Australian government to be aware that the taxpayers' money that they have been using to fund and train the security forces, it's not just the security forces. The training and the funding is extending to any groups within Indonesia for security matter, and this includes the stronghold of the Islamic groups, such as the Islamic Defenders Front, the acronym in Indonesia is FPI, and they are the ones that have now called for more recruitment and to go into West Papua. And so the government has not come down to condemn on, on them, and they, and they call for protecting the Islamic faith, and they also make it publicly, public rallies banning of the, the West Papua Morning Star flag, and as well as they've been allowed to go into West Papua and all the way to strongholds of where indigenous Papuans are marginalized, and then to stay there and protect the transmigrants and non-Papuans um, living in those areas where there's a lot of them uh, practicing their faith. And so this is very dangerous territory that West Papua is transitioning into. And it's kind of like also distract the focus as well of the real issue that the West Papuans have been calling for. And we maintain that call for our right to self-determination and not to be distracted by that social tension that has now been played out by the state through the, the radical Islamic groups such as the Islamic Defenders Front. And so that is the call. And so in West Papua at the moment, the, the leaders, the Papuan leaders, through the churches, the faith groups, diverse groups in terms of um, Christians and the Muslim Papuans are coming together and making a clear call that the situation in West Papua is not about differences of religion or ethnicity or race. This is about 
was Papuan right to self-determination that has a legal and political argument. And so that is that is the call now, and, and so that this could help to ease off a detention that has now been created or narrated by the state. just like to read you a paragraph from a, a call to address human rights abuses in West Papua. It was written on the 11th of September in PNG. Indonesia and Papua New Guinea are not fully independent if they do not address allegations of human rights abuses against Melanesians in Papua and West Papua province, said the National Capital District Governor, Paus Pake. These two countries need to tell the truth on how West Papuans are now under the Indonesian governments. Indonesia is not free unless West Papuas are free, and PNG is not free unless we are brave enough to tell the Indonesians that they must give independence to the West Papuans. How widespread is that view, do you believe, in PNG? The comments is so powerful in a way that it reminds me of um, one of the founding fathers of the Melanesian Spearhead Group. He's from Vanuatu and his late father, Walter Lini. And that comment reflects his call as well back in when Vanuatu just got its independence in the 80s. And he made it clearly that Melanesia is not free until all the non-self-governing territories in Melanesia and the Pacific are free. And that was also, that was the founding principles or values within the Melanesian Spearhead Group. And prior to that, as well as the Pacific Island Forum, as we know now, it was basically the bedrock of the, those, the beliefs and the values that these institutions was built upon. And the statement from Paul Spakop, the governor of um, National Capital District in Port Mosby, is reflecting as well in terms of with Indonesia at the moment, it is facing a crisis domestically in terms of the, the policies that is not reflective of a nation that really uh, brings together the ideology of Panchasila, whereby unity through diversity, it's not reflecting that. And in Papua New Guinea, given the strong cultural and ethnical um, relations, the next of kin is very strong. It's just an arbitrary line that separates the two. There is that underlying grievance that we are one people, we share one landmass. The culture that we share, it, it is something that is the bedrock of who we are as the people of the island of New Guinea, as Melanesians. And so that is a, that comment is timely for Indonesia to reflect that it is not free. Indonesia is not free until the region feels that they are freely, uh, well, they are free to exercise their culture, exercise the political views and in and as well as feel that yes we they are part of a nation they call as a, as in the nation at the moment it's not and so at the moment 
Jakarta needs to reflect on that comment, I, particularly about whether Indonesia is free or not. And I would say yes, Indonesia is not free. It is still um, under the bondage or under the, the bondage of colonialism, and it hasn't come out of that. And this also reflects with Papua New Guinea. Just because of Papua New Guinea, given its right to independence in the in mid 70s, it doesn't make them free from cultural practice in terms of being truly free from who they are as Melanesians. At the moment, Papua New Guinea is still exercising the constitutions that are reflective of Australia and of European constitution from the Great Britain. And so at this stage, there is a big debate within Papua New Guinea as well of bringing in as well the cultural systems, the social systems that the Papua New Guineans are practiced over thousands of years into the national constitution and how the tribes operate and work on cultural diplomacy, on land tenure, how that's all operated within that context. And so at the moment, Papua New Guinea is transitioning through that. And so definitely Papua New Guinea and Indonesia, the comments reflective of exactly what they need to do is to look deeper into both countries on West Papua case especially, that both are not free until they really consider West Papua right to exercise their cultural practice, their political aspirations, then it will also make them feel that both countries are free in that, in, in that sense of um, as a nation state. And Rani Karina is a member of the United Liberation Movement for West Papua. From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC a 3CR supporter. On the program last week, Coral Winter from Socialist Alliance spoke about her trip to the Galilee Basin in Queensland, the site of the proposed Adani coal mine. We continue her experiences in this region of Australia and later to central New South Wales to visit Indigenous peoples facing a future without water. Have you got any idea of how many people are working up there and what they're actually doing? Um, They're doing core samples and um, drilling sort of experimental parts to find out where the coal seam goes I guess and clearing all the land to get ready to set up um, to, to start mining it. No, I, I don't really have a clear idea exactly what they're doing, but, but there's, um, there was quite a few dongas out there where workers were um, staying. Um, I saw about 
20 of them. There's probably less than 100 workers out there at the moment, but yeah, along with the security guards. But it's very hard to get any information on exactly what they are doing. And, and it's only when um, people at FLAC sort of have a bit of a um, research around the area that you find out what's happening. I know that they um, have had another win because they haven't been able to get insurance. So the, another company has pulled out of giving them insurance. We should realise that Adani has never built a mine in his life. You know, the, uh, the company, that big company. What they do, they've built coal processing plants, electricity generating plants, but they've never built a coal mine. So they're dependent on all an Australian companies to build a mine for them. And so that's where we can try and stop them. Like GHD is another key player in this. That's a big multinational Australian company that is involved in water and um, supplies and construction companies, construction processes as well. So they should be targeted as well to stop all this. They, they promote themselves as an environmentally friendly company, but that's a lie when it's they're um, actually doing an enormous amount of project around, around Adani's coal mine. You're talking about a very dry area. And I'd imagine with a, a coal mine or any mine, they're going to use an awful lot of water. I looked at it. They're using 22 billion litres of water a year, which will cost them nothing. And they've got access to that for 60 years. Can you imagine what it's doing to the, uh, the Great Artesian Basin and to the rivers around there? Well, there's no rivers around there. It's really, really dry. They've got to rely on the artesian basin that means it also means that's going to get totally polluted that our great artesian basin supplies or what or bore water supplies about 200 towns in queensland and it also supplies because of the great artesian basin that's why first nations people in Aboriginal were able to live in the desert areas and in central australia because it supplies the pressure from that water in the basin supplied 20 natural springs throughout the deserts in central Australia and which allow the Aboriginals to live there. Now they're all going to dry up and it's also polluted. You can't lose it anyway because it's polluted by these massive amounts of chemicals that the coal miners have to use to wash the coal. So this is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a disaster. Maybe it took millions of years for that great artesian basin which covers a third of the Australian continent to fill up and that's all just being lost and wasted they'll be useless to drink and useless for cattle and useless for agriculture i don't think people realize the enormity of this of this situation and as you said this if this one goes ahead there's all the others waiting in the background and some of them far bigger than the adani one that's right yeah because he's had to cut back the size of his because he couldn't get um They've stopped him getting loans from the four big banks, so he's had to cut it back. But, the, the, yeah, there's um, Reinhardt is, is behind all this and Clive Palmer. They've all got licences to you know, to build even bigger mines in that whole Galilee Basin. And, you know, when we were out there, I was just remarking somebody there. It was a clear sky, no clouds. You know, you could use solar power. At, at, a, at a hundredth of the cost of what this mine is going to cost in environmental and real terms as well. It's just not economically viable. But because they've donated huge sums of money to both Liberal and Labor parties, it's going ahead. It's just a, a shocking 
disgrace. And the the Labor government is going to support this mine. They might say they're not going to, but there'll be other ways other than taxation or the things that we can see that they'll be giving money to this mine. Yeah, yeah, there's massive subsidies in the um, supply of the railway line to, to um, cart the coal away. I think um, Adani already owes $80 million for the building of the railway line there because they have the company that's operating for him had to buy up a whole lot of land. He, he hasn't paid any of that money. The figures just don't add up. And there'll be all sorts of subsidies with, from the, the port which they've built to take this away. It's a disaster. But, the, the, you know, he's paid off the big players and the people who control the, the government that control the water and the, and, the, and the mineral licensing. What were the main things you got from this week, Coral? What does it mean for you? I'm a grandmother. I've got a couple of grandkids. You know, it's a fight to save their future. Absolutely necessary. I've got the time and the energy at the moment to go up there and try and make a protest and try and make a difference. It's really important. And I think anyone can do that. Everyone can do that. You know, or make a contribution whatever way they can, either financially or going up to see it. And you learn a lot, actually. I learned a lot from the the Aboriginal people who are in the camp and also there's an amazing number of organisers, of young people coming forward to organise all these protests. Amazing. They've got amazing skills and amazing commitment. They're such lovely people that you meet up there. You know, you can have a conversation with anyone. They've all got such interesting tales to tell and we're all sort of coming from the same idea and same commitment. So... It's just lovely, lovely people up there you'll meet. Them. There'd be no other way you could meet them. So it was just a really wonderful time, and I really enjoyed it. And I learned a lot. And, you know, you begin to see the nature of the country, the land, and you understand the, the devastation that will be wrought if this mine goes ahead. And we should be um, helping the farmers, First Nations people, to get water back on the land and to change this whole destruction that has been brought by the last 230 years of colonial occupation. Well, you've spent a week in Queensland where they're proposing to waste billions of litres of water a year. You then went on a, a bus tour to look at the crisis of water in New South Wales, the crisis of the lack of water in New South Wales. Well, that was another amazing five-day trip organised by Bruce um, Shillingsworth from the Marawari and Budjiti clans. And, yeah, it was a five-day trip. It's called the Yama Nangana Baka Corroboree Festival. And we went on a five-day trip around, first of all, Walgut, Bawarana, Burke, Wilcannia and Menindi to see the state of the... Barker River. It's called the Barker River First Nations people, that's their name for it, but it's the, the Darling River, the Darling Barwon River complex in um, outback western New South Wales. Start with Walgut? Yeah, we started with Walgut and oh, it was an amazing trip. We had organised um, two buses, so that was about 100 people on the buses and then invited anybody in cars to come along. So they're probably all together about 200 to 300 people on this cavalcade. Um, we left from Sydney on Saturday morning. One bus left on Saturday morning, another bus left on Sunday morning last week and then drove up to these towns. 
camped each night, Walgett, and then um, Moana, and um, every night we had a corroboree. Bruce had organised, Uncle Bruce had organised a number of the clans up there to put on a corroboree for us. And it was just amazing. It was just a wonderful, wonderful experience because the Aboriginal community up there are absolutely devastated. I didn't realise how long this disaster has been going on for, but it's really been happening for the last 15 years and the water has just disappeared. There's just nothing there. And they're suffering terribly, you know, because... It's sort of these cultures feel as if they're going on the brink of, dis- of um, destruction because how can they teach their children and um, for those people teach their children and, and maintain their customs and their dances and um, teach their children about the river when there's no river? It's, it's probably even worse than a series of puddles because in some places there's no water at all. Is it because of lack of rain or is it that the water's been taken by others or a combination of both? One of the activists in Burke who spoke to us and informed us of some of the details and facts said it's nothing to do with the drought. It's total mismanagement of the river system, of the Darling Bowen system, the Barker River, and, and to do with total corruption of the National Party parliamentarians. Absolute corruption. It began... In 2004, when John Howard privatised water, made it possible to sell water on the stock market, that's when it began, and now this is the um, outcome of it. The big corporations have been able to pump out the water legally onto huge dams. Some of these dams are one kilometre by two kilometres from the river. So there's no water reaching, coming down from Queensland, reaching Walgett or um, Boorana. No water at all, hardly, because they've pumped it out beforehand. They've done it legally because the politicians from the National Party and the Liberal Party have pushed it. Um, these big corporations, they've even forced out the minor small players like the irrigators who had farms or there was a great company at Menindi and it produced a, a special wine that even got a special name because it was so uh, such a different flavour. Coleman Indy Wines drove past that. That's totally just abandoned. So that's what's happened. It's it nothing to do with the drought. Well, a little bit to do with the drought, but that's it's been going on. We've suffered through droughts for hundreds of thousands of years in that area. It's to do to mismanagement and corruption. It's just so clear, so obvious when you tour these towns and talk to the people who have been fighting us for, um, for the last 10 years. And you can think of the evaporation on huge dams like that it must be fairly high oh they don't care they've got enough water they've got one dam is some or one dam has got something like 10 times the size of sydney harbour or they've sucked out all that water what are they like, using it on um, what are they using it well, on there's 1500 companies growing cotton but that's throughout australia i'm not sure how many it is in new south wales 1500 companies registered to grow cotton, you know, in the driest continent on earth in Australia, which is crazy. But what, there's these new crops that they've put in, I'm not exactly where they are, I think it's around Broken Hill, and they're crops where they're growing almond trees, and I think walnuts, another another nut crop, which is worse than cotton, because cotton was only one crop 
a year, but these trees have put in thousands and thousands of these trees and require water all year round. So that's become worse. That's two companies, a Canadian company and another one, uh, I've forgotten the exact name, but which is run by Chris Corrigan. And he's the CEO. And Chris Corrigan, remember, he was the one who carried out the attacks on the, the Maritime Union of Australia to corporate to, to drive out the unions. So he's now in charge of this company that's Canadian company that's, t- that's taken all the water, stolen all the water, and forced out the small farmers. And there's one farmer there, um, McDermott family from Broken Hill around there. They've had to sell one of their farms because they're going to take a class action against the government for what that happened. So what's happened really is you've privatised the river, which is a natural resource for everybody to use. You've privatised it and stolen the water. So water is now the new oil. Lake Menindee, is that where all the fish died? Well, actually, it wasn't Lake Menindee because we camped at another site near Weir, at a Weir, which was used to be called the Burke and Wills Weir, and that's where the fish kiln was, and we camped beside that. That's also dry and totally dry and totally um, very little water, and it's a lot of algae in it. The thing about... Menindee Lakes, which I didn't know, and which um, another filmmaker who made a film called um, Disappearing River told us about, is why they've drained Menindee Lake. It's nothing to do with supplying water to downstream the May River to get which goes that flows on then to South Australia. It's because they're looking for the mining companies are looking for rare earth metal. They were filled up at 2016 Menindee Lakes from the floods in Queensland. Within a month, two months, they drained it, let it all out uh, down the river because they wanted it dry because they're looking for these rare earth metals. There's a massive investment campaign now for these rare earth metals. They're in the group of lanthanides, if you know the periodic table, and they're being used for consumer electronics, to put in electric vehicles and also military equipment and they need these rare earth metals. That's why they're getting rid of any water in Mindy Lakes. What's happening to the people in the townships and the Aboriginal communities? They've lost half their population. In Menindi, which used to be a tourist town, um, and they were told it had 100% employment because they were providing fishing and touring and swimming on the Menindi Lakes. There's, uh, you know, quite a... There used to be quite a large residential people living along Menindee Lakes. You've lost half your population in these towns or even more. Menindee itself used to be full employment. Now they've lost half their population. So it's a disaster. You know, really what they're doing is the government has a secret plan to really destroy these small townships. They don't want them. They're a burden on the budget because you have to supply police and schools and some medical facilities. What they're really secretly doing with drying up this river and selling it off is also part of their plan is to destroy the townships so that people be forced into the, into the cities and forced out of these areas. And it means that the, whole, the Aboriginal communities will be forced out as well because there's no water, no work, nothing to live on. So that's their plan, really, to destroy these townships out back. They don't care. It's a conscious effort to destroy the towns, withdraw the water, 
so they can mine whatever area they want to in, in, in any part of, or at least of, West, of, of New South Wales. It, it, it's horrendous. It's, what, you know, what is happening is, is just appalling. Oh, one thing I'd like to remember, like to say that we had some great um, Aboriginal corroborees on these riverbanks at all the towns we visited, the Warrenau and Burke and, and Walgett and Wilcannia. And, but the one in India was very special because they had never had corroboree there since 2001. So that's, an, I didn't use that was the first one. So part of the Aboriginal campaign, First Nations people and the clans around there, is to bring back the Aboriginal culture, bring back their songs, their dances, and to fight for the water to be returned to the river and to become a natural resource for everybody to use. So we're going to continue this campaign. Um, it won't go away. There'll be lots of um, films and, and, and shows and talks about it because there was a lot of people filming uh, material. People could go on um, N-G-U-N-N-A, yana.com, water for rivers at gmail.com for more information, or those websites, yes. What's happening with the animals and the birds? Well, you hardly see any animals around... Burke was probably one of the worst. It seemed to be so devoid of emus and kangaroos. You hardly saw any kangaroos. Birds are disappearing. All the animals and bird life, and especially and the fish, of course, are all disappearing. There's hardly any native fish left in the rivers. We've lost several species of native fish. But, but the mayor of Wilcannia, his name is Adams, he told us, he's a, a, Aboriginal, he told us that they were having a meeting and this kangaroo died right in front of their meeting, just fell down and died. And when they went over to look at the, uh, the kangaroo, there's all these little sort of bugs and um, insects came off him. And what's so, the thing, it's so dry. It's so, no, there's no moisture in the air, there's no dew on your tent when you get up in the morning but it's so dry that the little insects are sucking any sort of liquid they can get access to in the, in the animals and, and killing them as well so it's an enormous environmental um, disaster on that level on both bird life and animal life and and um, the, the trees as well and the people a sad journey in many ways well Look, the Aboriginal people welcomed us so much. They were so friendly, so grateful that we'd made this trip because they've been talking about this for years and nothing's been done and nobody's heard them. They've just been totally ignored. Uncle Bruce told us that several of the elders had been had talked for hours to an SBS team that came out there and not one minute of it was ever shown on TV. So they've been talking about this for years and, and not knowing what to do about it. So they were so grateful and so receptive and so happy to see us and gave them such a boost in inspiration and to keep fighting that it was really, really a wonderful experience. And it's, I mean, it's very hard for, you know, I think white people um, from the cities to have any direct contact with the Aboriginal community, but this trip, that bridge was solved and it was really wonderful and they were very very great for us to coming in this is going to continue every year in one form or another until we get change this legislation we're calling for a royal commission into the corruption that led to this situation 
and, and those that are border thieves to be jailed or charged will continue this fight and um, keep it going and, until the river is restored to health. And because we have, and, and also the Aboriginal community must be on any committee in which they look into this situation because they know how to solve this problem. They've looked after it for 80,000 years. They know what to do and they've never been consulted, never been asked. And, and that they must, the Aboriginal community must be a permanent member of any committee that is set up to solve this problem. Thank you, Coral. Right. And that was Coral Wintle from Socialist Alliance and even more reasons from what you've heard Coral say in the last little while to get involved in IMARC blockade. From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC, a 3CR supporter. For 45 years, Friends of the Earth has been mobilising communities to resist the destructive industries like coal, gas, nuclear, and to transform our world into somewhere better. Come celebrate with us as we celebrate 45 years of creative resistance. 25th of October at the Gasometer, doors open at 8pm with a welcome to country at 9pm. The lineup includes Alicia Joy, Hello Tut Tut, Mortisville, Claddy, and more. You know it'll be fun because it's Friends of the Earth. See you there. You can get tickets online or at our famous food co-op at 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. Friends of the Earth are a proud supporter of 3CR. The South American country of Ecuador's capital Quito has been rocked by massive protests for over a week following the government of Moreno's decision to institute an austerity program which included ending fuel subsidies at the behest of the IMF, with which it signed a $4.2 billion loan deal. But it's not only Indigenous city dwellers who are protesting against the government and developments. In the Ecuador rainforest, the Indigenous peoples are protesting against destruction of their livelihood and culture. And we should all be protesting about the destruction of the environment in the Andes, much of which is still uncharted, but acknowledged as one of the most biodiverse places on Earth. Anthony Amos from the Melbourne Rainforest Action Group explains further, and thanks to 3CR's Earth Matters for this segment. For many years, the the Ecuadorian government opposed mining, large-scale mining that is, in the country. And um, basically, in the last few years, as a result of oil revenue drying up, they've had to desperately clamber for um, for mining companies to enter the country. Um, Ecuador's interesting in that it hasn't had a history of of mining before, uh, large-scale mining, uh, that is. 
So what our concerns are is that the, is the country is woefully um, unprepared for what's going to happen there. You've only got to look at what's happened in Chile and Peru over the last a few decades, um, and there's been all sorts of, all sorts of problems in, in in those countries, and we can see uh, history uh, repeating itself in, in Ecuador. The issue, the main issue with Ecuador too, is that under their constitution, uh, the rights of nature are guaranteed. So essentially what that means is communities uh, have to more or less agree to, to proposals happening on land. Right across the country now we're seeing an upswell of, of communities opposing these mining developments. Why we're interested in Ecuador is, is that the two biggest countries with the biggest mining presence in, in Ecuador are Australia and Canada. And so uh, that's why we got interested um, in the issue because we wanted to uh, better understand and expose the activities of the Australian companies that are um, looking to set up these mega mines in Ecuador. To give it a bit of history, there was a group called the Rainforest Information Centre that helped set up a rainforest reserve in northern Ecuador back in the late 1980s. The reserve uh, is called Los Cedros. A guy called John Seed, with funding from the Australian government, set up to protect this um, this really important area. It's, it contains cloud forest. It's on the eastern side of the Andes, and it's some of the most biodiverse forests on the planet. About two years ago, there have been some activities on the boundaries of, of the reserve, and some of the people at the reserve uh, feared it was small-scale miners and loggers and they did a bit more research and then lo and behold they found that it wasn't just Los Cedros that was threatened with mining, it was um, almost a third of the country had been opened up to mining concessions in the past couple of years and a lot of these mining concessions are on the lands of Indigenous people. A lot of the concessions are also in very important water catchment areas and also areas that contain very diverse uh, tropical rainforests. That's Essentially, how we got involved was essentially uh, looking at, at the mining issue at Los Cedros, and we thought, God, if, if this could happen, if this mining is could go underway in uh, in Los Cedros, it could go underway anywhere in the country. In terms of of the forest values, um, as I as I mentioned before, it's got some of the most biodiverse rainforests on the planet. I mean, you're looking at hundreds of species, not just in a thousand hectares, but you know, per tree, basically. So there's hundreds of, hundreds of species, hundreds of thousands of species at Los Cedros. Scientists are still just trying to document what's going on. Now the other thing about, uh, issue about Ecuador too is the eastern side of, of the country is, is in the headwaters of the Amazon. And so um, any activities in the headwaters of the Amazon could have big impacts downstream. And already we've, got, we've had the bad news that a Chinese mine has, has basically started to mine at a place called Mirador. There were some assassinations of the local community a few years ago to get this mine over the line, and they're building a tailings dam on one of the major tributaries of the Amazon. Uh, it's 250 metres high. The next highest tailings dam anywhere else in the world is only 90 metres high, and, and we all know what, what happened to the tailings dam. Uh, well, there's been two major accidents in, in Brazil in the last few years, and so to have a, a mine of this size with a tailings dam in an earthquake-prone area in the headwaters of the Amazon is really looking for trouble. And that particular uh, tributary flows into Peru as well and then um, into Brazil. The issue with the Samarco mine in Brazil back in 2015, uh, the one owned by BHP, that basically 
uh, destroyed 650 kilometres of river. If this Mirador Dam goes down or there's problems there or earthquakes or whatever, um, we could be looking at potentially thousands of kilometres of, of Amazon uh you know, a river being impacted with untold um, consequences to the people living downstream who, who rely on, on, on these waterways and, and also the countless animals that rely on, on the river as well. The one at Mirador, and there's another one close by that's opening this year called Fruta del Norte, which is um, partly owned by the Australian mining company Newcrest. That's the uh, ancestral land of the Shua people. They've been objecting to mining in, in their country for, for years now. The impacts there are already being felt. There's been um, communities basically dislodged. There's been a lot of problems within the intertribal groups. All sorts of issues with um, outsiders coming into work at the mines and then the flow-on social effects that occur in these pretty much pristine areas when these big mining operations come in. So the Shua people have got as I said, two major mines, which are the only two major mines operating in Ecuador. One opens this year and another one later in the year. So um, they've really got their backs against the wall over there, and that's the Shuar people. There's a whole range of, in, uh, of indigenous tr tribes throughout Ecuador, of course, and uh, an another community we're really worried about is in the north of the country on the border of Colombia and Ecuador, uh, the Awa people. Some of their uh, lands are under concession by Australian mining company Solgold and also I think Gina Reinhardt's company um, Hanrein have some concessions over Awa land as well. There was no consultation. This was, was played out with the upper echelons of, of the Ecuadorian government with no consultation with the people. The only consultation that appears to have happened is with the mining companies themselves. And we know, for instance, that the Twiggy Forest and Gina Reinhardt which are the, um, the wealthiest miners in Australia, were over there having meetings in 2016, 2017. So this has been, been set up. It's, it's a really bad scenario that's unfolding. And, uh, yeah, look, Australian companies are up to the eyeballs in it. The Australian company with the most concessions is a, is a Brisbane exploration company called Solgold. Now, Solgold um, has been around for about 15, 20 years. Uh, their CEO and... Uh, brainchild is a, is a guy called Nick Mather and he was also one of the main catalysts of opening up coal mining in Galilee Basin in Queensland. His company Waratah Resources was actually um, they were pushing ahead to mine coal out of the Galilee Basin about 10 years ago and, and they were snapped up by Clive Palmer. Solgold have, have got over 70 concessions from the north of Ecuador right through to the south and uh, at the moment, there's all sorts of protests emerging. There's all sorts of uh, dissent as the communities finally realise that, you know, their communities are um, under great risk from these operations. Already there's helicopters flying over, you know, doing the seismic sort of mapping, and that's causing alarm in these communities. These communities don't want mining foisted on them, and they're left in a situation where their backs are against the wall. So all they can really do is resist and organise and try to stop these companies like Solgold from operating and destroying their futures, essentially. There's been a number of protests throughout the country, uh, particularly over the last year or so. Under the Constitution, there has to be consultation. There's been a couple of um, mines that have actually been stopped through the, the opposition of, of local people. A really interesting one was a, a, a mine called Rio Blanco, which was owned by a Chinese company. 
that was objected by the local people and they actually uh, got the mine stopped and that was um, just starting to to operate. So the Chinese owners of that mine aren't very impressed. You can imagine uh, the pressure that's going on. There was one of the mining camps was, it was set fire to. Uh, There's been all sorts of activities going on throughout the country and and it's only the warm-up. I mean, right across the country now, it's, it's, it's basically ready to to go off, I think. Only a couple of weeks ago, there was a meeting which we helped fundraise for, happened in Quito, so there was about 30 to 50 activists from around the country met there to discuss how they were going to um, to deal with these companies. A lot of them were, were under the pump from, from Solgold, as, as, as I've mentioned, and only two weeks ago in the Intag Valley, which is in, in the north of the country, there was um, another very big meeting. I think there was about 1,800 people turned up to that one and our little group also helped fundraise to help that event happen as well. So we see our role as, as filling in the other uh, details of who these companies are. We provide reports, you know, those reports are translated into Spanish and then, the, and then they're, they're sent through to people on the ground so at least they can get a better grasp of who they're dealing with. I mean, um, one case was um, even the Ecuadorian media had no idea about a company called Hanron. It was our work really that uncovered that Han Ryan was none other than Gina Reinhardt. She bought some some big concessions in the north of the country in back in 2017. What happened then was uh, at the same time that happened there was a gold rush happened on her mining concession and within about a month or so of, um, of her getting the concession 10,000 illegal miners had, a, had arrived on their land and they were basically um, mining that concession for about 18 months. This is gold mining. There was mafia involved. There was all sorts of problems that, that happened. There were a few murders there, and uh, as a result of, of the murders and also a meeting that Hanron had set up with, with the president of, of, of Ecuador, the Ecuadorian government sent in 2,000 troops to clear out the site, and this happened in, in July. This is Australia's richest person, and there's all this chaos going on in, on, on her concession. Now, her concession is where all the, all the troubles were is only 10 kilometres away from this, this mega mine that Solgold want to construct at a place called Cascabel. Cascabel is located in very close proximity to the Colombian border, and there's been all sorts of transgressions and you know, organised crime and, uh, and you name it flowing in over the border from Colombia into Ecuador. And so to, to build a mega mine that Solgold are planning in the um, such a, a, a really troublesome area is, is not a good look. And just on that one, BHP and Newcrest are, are also major owners of this big development at, at Cascabel. And what we, we're trying to do is pull the rug from under that development by you know exposing the security risks that are, that are going to happen by... Um, having such a, a huge development in such a precarious location. And this is how I see our, our main role in Australia is to help organise funding so that and the money goes directly to the communities that are impacted on the ground in Ecuador. Uh, none of our group is on a wage. Uh, every bit of money raised goes straight to where, where the money's needed. And those two big meetings that, that I mentioned uh, that just happened in Quito and in, in, and in the north of the country in the Intag Valley, um, yeah, we threw in a few thousand dollars to that, and that goes a very long way in, in Ecuador. Uh, we've got a fundraiser uh, on a platform called Fund My Planet, and you do a search there, and it's, 
for say of Ecuador's rainforests from mining and, and people can pledge whatever they feel like and I, I think that's our main role at the moment. The other thing what we're trying to do is, is to build up our little our group a little bit and uh, and get more involved with direct actions so we'll be involved with Lock 8 I mark. He certainly will and I'll just give that information on Blockade I mark once more. That's Anthony Amos from the Melbourne Rainforest Action Group. From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC, a 3CR supporter. And also the news that the bulldozers and the workers are moving in on the trees near Ararat. So this is another urgent message. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japarung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarung traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarung country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. I'm speaking now with Bishop George Browning, the president of APAN, Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. What you're going to discuss, George, is a recent article by Alex Rifkin titled Zionism and the Big Lie, How Soviet Anti-Semitism Shaped Contemporary Anti-Zionism. And it's an article which was published through the ABC Religion and Ethics site, which you labelled as Too Cute by Half. Alex is Chief Executive Officer of the Executive Council of Australian Jewry. He's a writer, a speaker, a commentator. His family life was in the Soviet Union and they came to Australia as refugees in 1987 when he was three years old. Can you identify the main points in his article with which you have exception, to say the least? In his article, he attributes the um, opposition to Zionism as emanating from, from the Soviet Union, from Russia, from people who have emigrated to, to Israel from, from Russia. And my objection to it is that anti-Zionism, which is linked to anti-Semitism, is primarily associated with the view that people have of Israel's treatment of Palestinians today. Not in the, it's, not, it's nothing to do, it, well, I shouldn't say it's nothing to do, it, it has, to, has everything to do with the 
strategy at the moment of Israel in wanting to annex Palestinian land to diminish the right of Palestinians really to exist or to be taken seriously. That's um, Zionism in its essence actually began in the in the West outside of Judaism. It was a, a movement really which was in its own way anti-Semitic. It was designed to take Jews out of Europe and place them somewhere else. <clears throat> and uh, Belfort, and the famous Belfort Declaration, in a way, he himself was an anti-Semite. He wanted the Jews out of Europe. But uh, Zionism soon became a movement within Judaism itself for understandable reasons to have the security of their own land facing, as they had, terrible discrimination in Europe, and which climaxed, of course, in the horrors of the, of the Holocaust. And so the, the desire of, of the Jewish community to have a homeland of their own is totally understandable. The difficulty is that in appropriating the land today, there is continuing violence perpetrated against the Palestinians. And uh, historically, Palestinians and Jews, Christians, Muslims, Jews, Arabs, all live together happily, but that isn't the case today. And Palestinians, as you know, are uh, not treated well even within Israel itself, let alone on the West Bank or the Gaza Strip. And uh, in the new state law that was passed, was it earlier this year or late, late, late last year, really declared that uh, it is part of the Israeli culture to, to settle. And so Alex Rifkin or anybody, a Jew in Australia, can actually settle in the Palestinian land. And uh, Palestinians are not allowed to build a house in their own land. So my argument with Alex Rifkin is that anti-Zionism or anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism is totally inexcusable, anti-Zionism really arises from the treatment of Palestinians in the contemporary world. It certainly has historical roots, but its main reason is the behaviour of Israel towards Palestinians today. Does he address this issue at all? No, not really. I mean, it's, it's, it, it is always the argument that there is an historical reason or, or uh, people who speak this way are, are anti-Semitic. And uh, one of the things that's happened in recent times is that, that there has been a desire to extend the meaning of anti-Semitism to include any criticism of Israel itself, which is, of course, absolute nonsense. And uh, it's uh, extremely important that... Uh, Jewish people, Muslim people, LBG, LBG people, all people are treated with respect and any form of discrimination is uh, totally unacceptable. But so also is unacceptable is, the, um, is a state behaving discriminately towards other people, uh, either of, the, of their own citizens, as in Arabs in Israel, or against people uh, in a neighboring country. And my argument and the argument of APAN is that for Palestinians to live with freedom and autonomy beside Israelis is in Israel's best interest as well as Palestinians' best interest and to maintain, to have to have walls and to, to maintain a kind of uh, discriminatory policy is not in anybody's best interest in the long run. Does he acknowledge in any of his writings that there are many Jewish people who don't agree with Zionism? 
No, he doesn't. He doesn't do that. Uh, and you're absolutely right that that that, that is the case. Uh, APAN has many Jews in, in the network, and uh, they probably have a much harder time than I do. Uh, I think they're called self-hating Jews or something. Um, but from in that particular group, and uh, no, there are many, and and certainly in uh, Judaism in in America is greatly split on this issue, and. Uh, the strong support that that um, Trump receives in in um, in supporting Israel, come what may, largely comes not from the Jewish community, but it comes from the the, the extreme right Christian community, which is quite shameful, really. And the fact that Israel is propped up by all that American money, and a vast majority of that money, I believe, goes into the military which not only keeps the Palestinians in the state they are, but also tries to take land off the, the um, countries around Israel. And that's one of the reasons, is it, that the Palestinians do not accept the state of Israel because it keeps on expanding as they take over other people's land. Is that true? Well, the Palestinians do accept the state of Israel, and they, they have since, um, <clears throat> actually, since Arafat's time. In that so there, sense, there is, though, that, that they keep on expanding the state of Israel? Th th that is the case. But uh, Palestinians have agreed, uh, have accepted the state of Israel from Arafat's time and from since the Oslo agreements. There's no, that, that's one of the things that is constantly said is simply not true true is that Israel does not accept the state of Palestine or the, and uh, Netanyahu is on record as saying he will never allow an independent state of, of, of Palestine so the boot is on the other foot it's not that Palestinians don't accept Israel, it's, it's the other way around and uh, that's what uh, the world politics have to deal with and interestingly I, I get little snippets from Haaretz the, uh, the uh, Israeli newspaper daily and uh, Interestingly, there's an article today saying Israel's got a wake-up call with Trump pulling out of Syria and abandoning the Kurds. That if he abandoned, if he abandoned the Kurds, what's to say in the future he won't abandon Israel? And uh, uh, I think they have every right to to raise that issue. Um, Trump obviously does not put any weight behind friends or loyalty or responsibility. He just he takes an action because he thinks he wants to take an action and with no no sense of moral responsibility in it at all. And Israel will be very foolish in the long run to be, rely, to be relying upon a, a Trump-led America to support them. I'll just read finally the last two sentences of your, your paper. Over two millennia, Jewish people have often punched above their weight in many fields that have contributed to human advancement. But the Zionist project manifest in the current state of Israel is a dark period in Jewish history. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what I mean by that is that in so many fields, uh, uh, you have to mention Einstein, for example, in, in science, in medicine, in, in music, in, in the arts, Jewish people have punched well above their weight. The contribution of the Jewish community to the progress of humanity has been astonishing. But this particular period of um, such brutality and violence against the Palestinian people is, is a dark, dark stain upon, uh, on, upon Jewish history. And I'd imagine that Alex hasn't replied to your paper? No. Thanks, George. You, you're welcome. Well, as Bishop George Browning 
said there. Alex Rifkin hasn't replied to his article, but Professor Emeritus Stuart Riss has, and I'll read what he said. Timely, apt analysis and advocacy. Historical highlights invaluable. In this populist, authoritarian world, we only respect military and economic strength. Shame has died and cruelty is proudly flaunted, not least by Mr Rifkin. To encourage creative, non-violence, non-destructive ways of thinking, perhaps a start could be made by placing a copy of this article on every federal politician's desk, plus a copy to the editor of the ABC's Ethics and Religion Journal. And that was a comment by Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees on the recent article by Bishop George Browning. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Six years I've been in desert. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. I'm talking now with activist and academic Dr Tim Anderson. First, Tim, the decision by the US to withdraw troops from northeastern Syria... Within days, Turkey begins an offence against the Kurdish group in Syria. What is not easily acknowledged is that both the US and Turkey are in Syria illegally. The root of the conflict in the region is occupied Palestine, right? The 50 years now, Israel has occupied a part of southern Syria and Israel tried to annex part of southern Lebanon while it's ethnically cleansing Palestine. So effectively all of the conflicts in the region 
go back to this problem of Palestine in many respects. The recent wars in the Middle East and the, the 21st century wars are very much to do with trying to reshape the entire region so that it's effectively under the domination of the US, making use of its principal foothold in the region, Israel and also Saudi Arabia. So that's what's behind the attempts to destroy Syria, the attempts to destroy Hezbollah, the aggression against Iran, the war on Yemen are all linked in in this sort of way. And so <clears throat> really the, the Turkish and US occupations of Syria more recently are largely because the Syrians with their allies, in particular Iran, Hezbollah and Russia, have destroyed most of the proxy armies that were sent into Syria. And so to preserve and give a safe haven to those proxy armies, we've had a, a Turkish occupation in northwest Syria, a US occupation in northeast, east, and to some extent southern Syria. Now that the US is withdrawing, it seems like possibly from the whole of north and perhaps east Syria, the last proxy that the US used there, uh, uh, sort of a hybrid group led by separatist Kurds called the SDF, they find that they can't properly resist a Turkish invasion which has been happening over the last few days, a Turkish invasion with allied jihadists, the same people that were in the so-called Free Syrian Army, a Muslim Brotherhood network with um, jihadists including Jabhat al-Nusra and ISIS, the banned terrorist groups, they are currently invading large parts of North Syria. And um, just in the last few days, there's been an agreement, finally, between the Kurdish militia, who have been abandoned by the US, and the Syrian Arab Army, as I say, directed by the Syrian government in Damascus, for the Syrian Arab Army to deploy themselves across North and Northeast Syria in, air, in areas where they had come to a type of a truce with the, with the Kurdish militia, basically. So all that's happening at the moment, basically, it seems that the Trump administration is, in fact, withdrawing, partly because of the contradictions between their Turkish ally, ally in NATO, and also because Trump, off and on, has talked about, um, reasonably, despite what you think of the man, about the, the uselessness of the, of the US presence in Syria and its contribution to the, the very long war that's been going on there. The relationship between Turkey and the US, how strong is that and how, how strong has it been in the past? Well, Turkey is a member of NATO and it's wanted to join the European Union and the US has, of course, dominated NATO from the beginning and it is still a very powerful influence in Western Europe. I mean, We've seen that that when there's been this economic war, for example, against um, Iran, that the Europeans haven't really wanted to go along with it, but they've been forced to go along with it. The Europeans find it very difficult to do something separate from the US because of the US historical role there. Turkey has been attempting to get into the European Union unsuccessfully, and so there's been this strained relationship in recent times. I mean, Turkey played a very important role in getting all of the international jihadists into Syria to prolonging the war. Effectively, after the, the first year, the Syrian, to the extent that it was a civil war, the Syrian army was about to prevail. And then in 2012, there was a huge flood of 
al-Qaeda-style jihadists into Syria from North Africa, from the region, from Europe, from everywhere, from Australia. And so Turkey facilitated that. Turkey collaborated with Qatar, the Saudis and the US in trying to destroy Syria. But in the course of the war, some important tensions emerged between Turkey and the US. And uh, the, the current regime in Ankara, um, led by President Erdogan, doesn't really trust the U.S. because, partly because they believe that the U.S. was behind the coup, attempted coup in Turkey three years ago, and also because of this standoff over the um, over northern Syria, and with the Turkey still maintaining some ambitions to try and dominate northern Syria in a style that reminds a lot of people of the old Ottoman Empire, and the U.S. using some of their what they can what the Turks what the Turkish government considers its most serious enemies the PKK that is to say the the separatist Turkish group in Turkey itself which has established a base across the border in Syria where there's a much smaller group of Syrians so those tensions are in the middle of that of course President Putin has been trying to establish a partnership with Turkey to get round the blocks that the U.S. has been placing in the way of Russia's relationship with Europe, with Western Europe, you know. So there's a sort of a realignment of forces going on now. And in terms of the political process, in terms of uh, trying to bring peace to Syria, that has moved away from what used to be talks in Geneva, dominated by some of the Western powers, to talks in Astana, in, in the region, um, led by Russia and including Iran and Turkey. So Russia has been playing an increasingly important um, geostrategic role and its partnership with uh, Turkey has uh, come out in, in different ways. Nevertheless, Turkey's remained an enemy of Syria in the sense that it, there, there are still these pretensions that the Erdogan regime has to try and dominate and establish a Muslim Brotherhood regional power there. And that's at the root of the current Turkish invasion of Syria. Can you explain Putin's relationship with Israel? So the Russian relationship with Israel is a historic one, which brings some tensions into their alliance with Syria, but it hasn't really um, seriously damaged Russia's uh, assistance to defend Syria, except to the extent that with the Israeli attacks that have been on Syria, there are people who are upset that Russia hasn't done more to um, to protect Syria from Israeli attack, which are generally in support of the, the jihadist groups on the ground because Israel has a very strong interest in destroying Syria or seeing it very divided and weakened and unable to, for example, move to take back the territory that Israel currently occupies, the, the Syrian Jolan, for example. So there is an alliance between... Uh, well, a type of loose alliance between Israel and Russia, which has historical roots, not least in the fact that almost a million Russians went to Israel during the 90s when there was a Great Depression in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. There was really terrible economic conditions. Most of them were economic refugees, really. Some of them were Jewish, and half of them are still going through a process of conversion to Judaism but you know there's a numbers game going on in occupied Palestine where the the Palestinians the Arabs now outnumber the Jewish settlers and and citizens of um, of occupied Palestine and so 
you know, there's a co- that complicated relationship. It also involves investors, so it's um, it's something that complicates the, the alliance with Syria, but it doesn't destroy it. I think um, a couple of years ago there was a very clear statement from the Hezbollah leader, Saeed Hassan Nasrallah, saying, listen, we have a, an alliance with Russia as regards Syria, as regards fighting the terrorists that NATO has put into Syria, NATO and the Saudis have put into Syria. But when it comes to Israel, it's a different story, and we know it's a different story. So there's, um, that's, the, that's the basic reality of it. What's happening in Yemen at the moment with the increase in their power, it seems, over their northern neighbour, Saudi Arabia. Yes, there's been some rather spectacularly successful counter-attacks by the Yemen forces on Saudi Arabia, the first one being an attack on the, the large oil plant, which the US then tried to blame on on uh, Iran. And then secondly, a big um, military victory in Najran province, where effectively the Yemenis destroyed and disarmed three Saudi brigades, which were... Um, a mixture of Saudi regular troops and a, a lot of mercenaries from the region, including including mercenaries that recruited from Yemen, basically. So literally thousands of prisoners, huge amount of weapons captured, Western weapons and so on. But this is a dirty war going on in the, the south of the, of the region there, backed by the U.S., but effectively prosecuted mainly by the Saudis and with some squabbling going on between the Saudis and the, the Emirates and Qatar, but largely because in Yemen we had the one genuinely successful revolution of the of the recent period, you know, that people have spoken about an Arab Spring, but the only really genuinely popularly backed revolution was in Yemen, and so Yemen is now seeing itself more and more allied with the independent states in the region, and particularly Iran. What about the Kurds? Tell me what your view is on the Kurds. Well, the, the situation of the Kurds is a little bit complicated because the Kurds are a very big and quite diverse group in the region which historically um, have their origins in Iran and still one of the provinces in Iran is called Kurdistan. It has about a quarter of the, of the Kurds in Iran. But the biggest group of Kurds in the region are in Turkey. Now, the history, of the position of the Kurds in the region is differs according to the, the history of the last century, basically, in, in that region. There's been large-scale migrations historically. So, like I said, in terms of a heritage, most of the heritage of the Kurds lies in, in northwestern Iran. But because of the, you know, over the centuries, there's been large Kurdish populations moving westward and northwestward, You've got a situation in Turkey where uh, a lot of Kurds were very quite well integrated into, for example, the Ottoman Empire and took part in the, the, the genocide and the ethnic cleansing of Armenians and Assyrians, for example, and Greeks there. But then when the Ottoman Empire disappeared, they lost that privileged position and um, were subject to a fair degree of repression in Turkey. So you find the strongest separatist Kurdish group and there's almost 20 million of them in Turkey and in the last 40 years there's been a an armed separatist uh, uprising in Turkey and an ongoing let's say low level war sometimes not so low level in war in Turkey in the last 40 years that spilled across into Syria the situation is different in the four countries that have Kurdish populations you know in Iran 
there's because the Kurdish languages there and some other languages that Kurdish populations speak are considered Iranian languages, they're accepted. In Turkey, the, the, the modern Turkish state has tried to repress Kurdish culture and Kurdish language, and that's at the root of, I guess, the, the separatist uprising there. In Iraq, there was a situation with, where, because of uh, a feudal separatists in the north, and the Shia Kurds in the east, Saddam Hussein unleashed a repression. Basically, the Shia Kurds in the east were allied with Iran, and that accounts for a lot of the aggression against the Kurds by uh, the, the regime under Saddam Hussein. In Syria, there wasn't any serious repression because Syria historically, going back many, many centuries, has been a pluralist state include lots and lots of minorities basically that's one of the characteristics of, of, of Syrian society today is it's um, a genuinely plural state whatever you might want to say about the government but because of the existence of the, the, the strong separatist movement and the repression in Turkey there's really been a base of the Turkish separatists across the border and you know influencing some of the, the Kurdish um, separatists in Syria but in Syria, you've also had many prominent um, uh, Syrian nationalist figures who were Kurds, but who were more deeply engaged in the nationalist movement um, uh, in Syria, uh, going back for many, many centuries. For example, Saladin, who was a caliph 900 years ago. He was a Kurd, but he wasn't a, a Kurdish separatist. He was um, involved in the liberation of Palestine from the Crusaders and the two uh, Syrians who are buried next to the big mosque in Damascus, uh, Saladin and Sheikh al-Bouti, who was also a nationalist Syrian. You know, so there's a strong history in Syria of the inclusion of Kurdish people in a pluralist society. So it's rather complex in that sort of sense. What you've got, the current war, is really about a, what the Erdogan regime correctly sees as a base of the PKK, separatist Kurds in Turkey, across the border in Syria and trying to create a base for their separatist movement in um, in Turkey. But of course now uh, events have changed very rapidly in the last few days and now we see with the US withdrawal this alliance between Damascus and the Syrian army and the Kurdish militia there because they realise that their dream of of a, of a separatist enclave in Syria is disappearing very rapidly and rather than be annihilated by the the, the Turkish regime allied with these al-Qaeda groups um, they've now just in the last few days formed this alliance or agreement or agreed to be incorporated effectively into Syrian national forces You mentioned there the Kurdish enclave where is the quest for Kurdish homeland? Well it's it, there are different sections of it but as I said the main separatist movement is in Turkey But there's um, no there's, a, there's no actual place on the ground for a Kurdish homeland? There is a, there's a Kurdish province in, in Iran, but the, the Turkish regime won't allow any, any separate... Um, even they've banned the, the teaching of the Kurdish language, for example, in, in Turkey. You know? mm. Whereas I think that with the, with the settlement in Syria, we're going to see some concessions in terms of Kurdish culture and Kurdish language in Syria. But it's the fact that a lot of the Kurds uh, have, have fleeing the repression in Turkey have come across the border into Syria, and so you have quite a number of what you might call stateless Kurds in Syria 
some hundreds of thousands of which have got Syrian citizenship in recent times, but there's uh, there's that dynamic relationship between the Kurdish population in Turkey and the the Kurdish population in the north of Syria. By the way, it's important to remember that northern Syria or northeastern Syria are by no means completely dominated by Kurds. There are other people there. There are Arabs, there are Syrians, there are Armenians. In Sydney, for example, we have 500 families, Christian families from, Christian Syrian families from Kamishli who've come here as refugees because there's been a degree of ethnic cleansing of the Kurdish separatists in northern Syria to try and make out that some of those cities like Kamishli, which were very mixed, or Ain al-Arab, which they call Kobani, also a mixed area uh, to increase the Kurdish element. So this is the problem of having um, some ethnic, or an attempt to have some sort of ethnic-based state that it necessarily involves, um, you know, second, first and second-class citizenship, if not ethnic cleansing. And there has indeed been ethnic cleansing in, in northern Syria. But now, as I say, things are turning around. We started off by saying the US is moving, or they're saying they're moving out of northern Syria. How many of those troops are going to Saudi Arabia? Yes, there is a there is also a build-up in Saudi Arabia. You're right to to draw attention to that. The initial movement of US troops, though, seemed to be to Iraq in the first place because they still have a presence in Iraq that was invited a few years ago after the Iraqis got rid of them in 2011. Uh, they are talking about a, a deployment of up to 2,000 US troops in Saudi Arabia, you know, to protect their their oil, presumably. What that might mean for the war against Yemen is is a horrifying sort of thought, really, because. Um, but anyway, that there is that deployment going on at the same time as something like a thousand US troops are in Syria. Now, people were sceptical until fairly recently that the Trump administration was going to was talking about a withdrawal, but perhaps they weren't going to do it. They were going to move them round as they have in the past. But it does seem in recent days that the U.S. administration is a bit more serious in terms of moving out of large parts, if not all, of um, northern, northeastern Syria. We haven't seen what's happening in the, the, the southeastern parts yet, but um, so it, it's quite possible that there will be a redeployment of some of those same troops from northern Syria to Saudi Arabia. How difficult or easy is it to just move troops out of an area where they've been fighting? Well, it's... Um, you mean the US troops? Mm. They can't just say, well, oh, right, tomorrow we're leaving. It doesn't happen like that, does it? Or does can, it? They can do the, They can. They can do it quickly, even though they've established some bases. they established some, a number of, quite a number of airstrips, too, in, in north, uh, northeastern Syria, for example, the US. But they can do it very quickly, um, if they want to, it's very expensive, of course. It also means that you've got very long supply lines in, in conventional terms. You know, it's, it's very resource intensive to move around in that sort of way. But the U.S., of course, spends far more money on its military than any other nation. You know, so, you know, of course, there's a whole domestic politics about that, what they're doing to the masses and masses of poor people in the U.S. I heard the other day, for example, when I was in Damascus, actually, a North American man, Ajamu Baraka linking the poverty in the U.S. to the U.S. military, but the U.S. spends massive amounts of money on its military, and he was saying, well, you have to link this up to the underinvestment in poor people and the lack of health systems and so on, the fact that there are over 
100 million people, he said, in the U.S. that are, if not in poverty, very close to poverty and coming in and out of poverty, you know. So, But in the meantime, the U.S. Um, has the money to redeploy troops a very long way from home and supply them across many thousands of kilometres. And I'd imagine also an under, underdevestment in looking after the veterans when they return. That also, of course, that's true. And, um, and that, of course, links into the problems you're now seeing in Iraq, that wherever they deploy themselves, they have weapons that are heavy um, carcinogenic weapons like um, depleted uranium weapons, for example, that are linked to large-scale cancers across the region wherever the U.S. military has been, and the U.S. military has been in uh, most parts of the region, except Iran. That's what irritates them about Iran. Iran is the one state in the last 40 years that they haven't been able to get a toehold in. What's the situation in Iraq at the moment? There's been a lot of violence, a lot of people killed. Yes, there have been protests based on um, some genuine economic issues, for example. There's a lot of corruption in Iraqi society and uh, even though Iraq has oil, but um, that doesn't solve any country's problems. So there have been some serious economic problems, but they have been politically exploited by the US, which is still struggling to retain influence in Iraq and to stop Iraq developing a very close relationship with Iran and Syria, which has been going on for some time now, basically. And also some issues to do, such as the, the the nationalization of some of the oil assets and so on. The U.S., of course, has been trying to maintain privileged um, access by U.S. companies to the oil and so on. And also, the, you know, the large military contracts that Iraq has, you know, wasting huge amounts of money on U.S. weaponry, which didn't really help it very much when when ISIS came into. Came out, had, a, had a resurgence in Iraq in 2014. So there is a there is a politicisation of those protests in Iraq at the moment too. And that's um, Iraq basically is emerging from the ashes as a state, but it's um, got some serious problems. And the US is not is quite an expert in exploiting all sorts of problems. And of course, exploiting the situation in Iran. Which situation in Iran? Well, they're making the situation. They've created the situation in Iran. Oh, oh, absolutely. They're trying to create whatever pretext to try and blame Iran for everything and create some excuse for attacking Iran. That's been ongoing for some time. But, you know, fortunately, Iran, whatever you think of religious systems, is a very stable, independent state there and is resisting U.S. influence. And that's why it's so important to the region. It's also Iran is helping the resistance in Yemen now. It's helping the resistance in Lebanon. It's um, arming Palestinian resistance. It's helping Syria. It's helping Iraq. And that's at the root of the, the U.S. Um, and Israeli antipathy to Iran, basically. So Iran is, but Iran is much more stable and more powerful state now than it was 40 years ago when the U.S. Remember, encouraged Saddam Hussein to attack Iran in that terrible long war through the 80s. Yes, you should just think where it could be if that war hadn't happened, where Iran could be now. Yes, not and just Iran, but the region. You know, the, the, one of the things that horrifies Israeli and U.S. planners is what they call an Iranian land bridge. That is to say, very strong infrastructure, um, roads, rail, 
uh, communications between Tehran and Beirut. That means the integration of those countries, which will be tremendous for the economic development of the region because, of course, the, the whole region there is very backward economically precisely because it's been divided and there's been all these wars. Um, and so the future of the region has a lot to do with integration and um, in terms of industry and trade and the whole range of things. Um, so um, that's one of the things that's emerging out of these wars, a positive thing, you might say, that's coming out of the ashes, that there is uh, on the cards a much stronger alliance. Precisely the thing that the US wanted to avoid, wanted to prevent happening when they when they backed that war between Iraq and Iran, it's now happening that the relations between Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Yemen, Palestine, for example, are strengthening. And that's what makes the US and the Israelis seem quite a bit desperate sometimes. You see those hysterical comments about Iran that Netanyahu makes, for example, that they're very concerned about the, the regional integration of those more independent countries. Thanks again, Tim. Thanks, Jan. And that was Dr. Tim Anderson, activist and academic, speaking about the Middle East. That's all I have for today, but I will be back at 4 o'clock next Tuesday. But stay tuned for Done by Law in a couple of minutes' time. We'll go out with a song from Ruby Hunter. Bye for now.